I want you, if you will, to turn in your Bibles now to Mark chapter 14. We continue in our study of this glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, Mark chapter 14. Specifically this morning, we'll be looking at verses 10 to 21 under the title, The Man Who Never Should Have Been Born. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went off to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. They were glad when they heard this and promised to give him money. And he began seeking how to betray him at an opportune time. On the first day of unleavened bread, when the Passover lamb was being sacrificed, his disciples said to him, Where do you want us to go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the owner of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he himself will show you a large upper room furnished and ready, and prepare for us there. The disciples went out and came to the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he came with the twelve. As they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you that one of you will betray me, one who is sitting with me. And they began to be grieved and say to him one by one, Surely not I. And he said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who dips with me in the bowl. For the Son of Man is to go, just as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. Even the word itself has an automatopoeic ring to it. You know what a word is that is an automatopoeia. It's a word that can basically be defined by the way it sounds. We might hear the word zip or buzz or whisper. And by the very pronunciation of the word, it is an automatopoeia. It's a word that really sounds as it is to be defined. And the word I'm thinking of is, for me at least, an onomatopoeia. It sounds like what it really means. The word, of course, that I'm thinking of is the word betrayal. Betrayal. And according to our text this morning, Judas Iscariot betrayed Jesus Christ, thus violating the intimacy of their relationship. In this case, Judas did what he did in part for the purpose of gaining money. His betrayal was couched in what everyone assumed 
was an intimate and otherwise healthy relationship, not only with Jesus, but also with the Twelve. And I think this shows us, at least to some degree, that the concept of betrayal itself, even the way the word sounds as it is pronounced, is the most damaging aspect of all human relationships. Why? Because when one person, under the mask of intimacy, under the guise of camaraderie, under the illusion of closeness, instead betrays the other and sells them out. To betray, then, is to violate the deepest part of the soul of another person. It is to destroy a life-on-life bond. It shakes the spirit of a man to the core. It's true, and I know that you know this, some people have never recovered fully from being betrayed by someone else. Some, having been betrayed, desire to exact the deepest kind of revenge upon the person who has betrayed them. Why? Because they've been so violated. The betrayal is so deep. And of course, maybe the closest of all of those injuries comes within a marriage relationship when that level of trust and that level of intimacy has been so violated, so damaged. And of course, if it were not for the grace of Christ, if it were not for the forgiveness of sin that we ourselves have experienced, would we ever recover from anyone who betrays us? This is a text then, beloved, on betrayal. Even that very word conjures up evil and sin and destruction, doesn't it? Betrayal. I want us to look this morning at a text that is not a text for which we'll have a great deal of hilarity. It's a text, really, which speaks of a somberness, a soberness, a solemnity, because it is about a man who betrays someone else, as we have been talking about in the ways that we've experienced betrayal, but it goes a step further that's really the step beyond all steps of going further, and that's someone who has betrayed not only an innocent man, not only a man who never said or did anything wrong in his life, but a betrayal of the sinless Son of God himself. I want you to notice in verses 10 and 11, what we could call the perpetrators of the betrayal of Jesus. The perpetrators of the betrayal of Jesus. Who are these men? What are they like? How do we understand the motives behind their acts? Well, first of all, I think the reason why Mark puts what he does in certain sections of his gospel is to show us things by way of contrast. 
And last Lord's Day, you saw very clearly, didn't you, that there was a contrast between the religious leaders and their desire by stealth to kill Jesus and the contrast so greatly portrayed in Mark 14.3 by a woman named Mary, Mary of Bethany, who gave up her most prized possession to perfume, as it were, Jesus Christ and prepare his body for a burial, an act of sweet-smelling worship. And our text of the morning, verses 10 to 21, really continue that theme of a contrast. The contrast we have here, however, is not simply with the religious leaders of the day, not simply with the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Herodians and whoever else has a motive to kill Jesus of Nazareth. This morning, we're going to look at the contrast between those who love Christ and those who want to serve Christ, that is his disciples, at least 11 of them, who are grieved and saying, Surely not I, Lord. And one who was a would-be disciple, a false disciple, but one who is so close and so intimate with Jesus for a period of at least three years, Judas Iscariot. One from among his own band. And in contrast to the love and devotion of the woman in verse 3, we have Judas standing for us as the ultimate prototype of the betrayer. And we see it in verses 10 and 11, don't we? This woman, according to Mark 14, 3, desires to anoint Jesus because she loves him. She wants to worship him. Judas, however, by stark contrast, wants to betray him. He wants to sell him out. In fact, if you were to read the other parallel accounts in the other gospel records, you would find this, for instance, in Matthew 26, 16. From then on, that is, after having conferred with the chief priest, he began looking for a good opportunity to betray Jesus. Likewise, Luke writes this, Satan entered into Judas, who was called Iscariot, belonging to the number of the twelve, and he went away and discussed with the chief priests and the officers how he might betray him to them. And even John, while normally not conceived within the synoptics of these events, nevertheless has his own recording of these things, and he says this, even attaching a motive to Judas and to why he vehemently questioned Mary's anointing and the giving up of all of this expensive perfume. John says, Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who was intending to betray him, said, why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to poor people? And John adds, parenthetically, now he said this, not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, 
He used to pilfer what was put into it. So now, by way of divine description, by way of inspired commentary, we have at least one motive. Judas is a thief. He has a lust for money. He has a lust for control. And at least that is motivating him, along with Satan himself, to betray Jesus Christ. And not only was Jesus being betrayed by Judas, but the chief priests and the religious leaders were there as well. According to verse 10, it says, Judas went off to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. Of course, we know what their reaction should have been toward Judas. Being religious leaders, being the spiritual elite of the city, what should they have done? What should they have said to a man who came to them and said, what is it going to take for me to betray Judas in your mind? How much money do you think you could give me for doing such a thing because I know that's what you want? What should have been their response? They should have locked him up instead, right? They should have said, that is conspiracy to commit murder. And that is against the law of God. Therefore, you shall pay for such a sin. If they had done that, of course, there would have been no betrayal in fact. But the chief priests, according to verse 11, and the scribes were seeking how to seize Jesus and what were they thinking? What were they pondering in their heart? Verse 11. It's an incredible statement. They were glad when they heard this. Does that strike you? Does that just leap off the page at you as it does me? They were glad when they heard this? I did a little bit of a word study about that word glad. I really wanted to try to determine what the Holy Spirit was intending by characterizing these religious leaders as glad. What does that mean? It's the Greek word kairo. And it is used, for instance, in some other places. I can't share all of them with you, but for instance, in Luke chapter 15, verse 5, it's used when Jesus is speaking of a person who rejoices over finding a lost sheep. You remember the idea that if you have the one who's gone and is lost, that you leave the 99 and you go to the one and you find the one, and when you've found the one, you are rejoicing in your heart because you've found such a one? Rejoicing. It's also used in Luke 15, 32, when Jesus is speaking of the prodigal's father who is rejoicing over that prodigal's return. Glad, rejoicing, exhilarating, thrilling, stupendous, momentous. That's the idea. It's used in John 8, 56, when Jesus was speaking to the Jews, and he told them that Abraham had rejoiced to see the day of Christ. You remember that statement where he said, Abraham rejoiced to see my day and saw it and was glad. Well, that's an interesting choice of words, isn't it? The chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees, they were thrilled, exhilarated, rejoicing. By the way, 
in Acts 5.41, that same word is used of the disciples who are beaten, who are given lashes for speaking out about Christ, and it gives the inspired comment of the motives of their hearts when it says, they were rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. Boy, is that a contrast or what? They were rejoicing by virtue of the fact that they were being beaten for Christ, and the chief priests and Judas himself are rejoicing by the opportunity not to suffer for Christ, but to make Christ suffer. What a contrast. But what a, what a contrast of, of a heart. These religious leaders are then thrilled at the opportunity to seize Jesus and then kill him. They simply want to determine an opportune time in which to do it. But before they do that, Jesus has some plans of his own. He knows what they're doing. He knows the time frame. He knows what's occurring. He knows what's going on around him. And there are some things that his disciples need to know now, and so he makes his plans. He will share with his disciples what they need to know, including that from among their own selves, someone is going to betray him. Which, of course, for a scenario like that would be a shock. A tremendous shock. Can you imagine that the disciples have seen the vehemence of the crowd, at least to some degree? They've seen the hostility of the religious leaders. And they believe that everything outside of them is unrest and fervor. And you imagine they would huddle with themselves, closing ranks, wanting to make sure that even though it appears at times everyone outside of that group is wanting to do their best to stifle Jesus Christ, surely there's safety inside. Surely inside. We have those who have the great intimacy of relationship. Surely there's no betrayal here. Jesus wants them to learn that even in the closest, most intimate relationship, betrayal is always at the door. What does he want them to know? Well, he wants them to know not only about this betrayal, but that he himself will submit to such a betrayal, which would be a concept that would be not only foreign to them, but angry to them, volatile to them. You remember Peter? No, Lord, no, you're not going to go to a cross. Yes, yes I am, Peter, and I've said to you a number of times, as well as the rest of you, that I am going with my face set like flint toward Jerusalem to be killed, to be resurrected, and then to come to you again and give you instructions, and then to be ascended unto my Father, and I need to tell you that one more time. And so he says, let's talk about it during the great event that we celebrate each year called the Passover. And that's our second point, the preparation of the Passover meal. That's 
contained for us in verses 12 to 16. On the first day of unleavened bread, when the Passover lamb was being sacrificed, his disciples said to him, where do you want us to go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? In other words, because this is something that the Jews did religiously, no pun intended, they had to do it every year because they wanted to do it, because they were desirous of doing it, because it was for them the opportunity to celebrate what God had done in his graciousness in delivering their ancestors from that cruel bondage in Egypt and from certain death by the angel of death by painting the blood on the lintel so as to have the angel of death pass by. I don't know about you, but that would be something that I would love to celebrate every year if I were a Jew knowing that my ancestors were themselves saved and therefore I came along because of that salvation. And so they say, what do you want us to do? How do you want us to celebrate this Passover this year? And so he says, I want two of you to go into a city, and a man will be there to meet you, and he's carrying a pitcher of water, and I want you to follow him. And wherever he enters, I want you to say to the owner of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he himself will show you a large upper room furnished and ready, prepare for us there. And the disciples went out, and they came to the city, and they found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. There's really no need to exposit in detail the, the concepts that are related there. It's very plain for us to understand. But one thing I want us to be very clear on, as you see this unfold before you, one thing is so very clear. Everything that Jesus is doing is done by his sovereign decree. His will is reigning supreme. His insight is glorious. His omniscience is intact. I want you to go here. Uh, you'll be finding a man doing this. And when you find him, talk to him. And when he says what he says, you tell him this. And when he says that upper room is for you, you go there, prepare, and I will come to you. It's all like clockwork. God's plan, his design, his will, his purpose will never be thwarted. Never. It's all in the plan. And when this Passover is to be celebrated, the disciples find everything just as he told them. And so if you were told to prepare the Passover, and if all the things came true of what Jesus prophesied here, and if it was to the precise detail that he prophesied it, then you'd follow through on the command, wouldn't you? All right, I need to prepare the Passover because Stunningly, everything he has said has come to pass, and so I am obedient to his wishes. The preparation of this Passover, by the way, is, is a very fascinating thing. It's really not contained for us in explicit detail, although some of it is in our Old Testament, but there were a number of things that the Jews had to prepare for when they prepared for this Passover meal, even the meal itself. Even the bowl that we'll talk about in a moment, that was um, 
stewed fruit and some other elements that were placed into that bowl. And uh, when that bread was dipped into that bowl as a morsel, uh, it all had to be a, a certain consistency and it all had to be a, a certain recipe. And uh, the things that they did and the songs that they sang out of a particular psalm, all of those things were in precise detail because it harkened back to a day in which they were delivered and everything had to be just so. And so Jesus is saying, I want you to prepare. This is real. But I want you to know something very, very clearly. This is no ordinary Passover celebration. This is one that will hearken to the great Passover with a capital P, and that is that when my death comes as the sacrificial lamb, those who are passed over, as it were, is not because blood physical blood on a physical, literal lintel above a door. It is spiritually speaking the forgiveness of sin by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. I'll pass over your sin. You'll be forgiven. Jesus wants that picture in their mind to be so clear. And don't you know that when he institutes the Lord's Supper and he says, this is my body, and this is my blood, it sent chills down their spine. This is a, a wonderful preparation for a unique Passover. But we're not done. There's one more element. Thirdly, the prophecy of Jesus regarding the betrayer himself. The perpetrators, the preparation, and the prophecy. What is it? Verse 17. Everything's prepared. Passover is ready. When it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you that one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. Now comes the shock. Now comes the incredible, indelible, shock of all shocks. I've been with you. I've discipled you. I've taught you. I've nurtured you. I've prayed for you. I've sought you out. I've chosen you. I've forgiven you. But one of you will betray me. How could this be? Can you imagine you're one of the and you're reclining, maybe even John, reclining at the bosom of Jesus himself. You remember they didn't sit on chairs like we have. They sat on a very low place where maybe there was a table that was just a few inches high, and so they had to recline by, in essence, laying on their side, and so they were sort of laying against one another all the way around the table, and that, of course, in and of itself speaks of great intimacy, doesn't it? They're fellowshipping together. Even this idea of the meal in an Oriental mindset, a Middle Easterner or a Near Easterner, as we might say, that was a sign of great intimacy, great fellowship, great sustenance. For you to eat with a person was the opportunity for you to say, we have an unbroken friendship and relationship with each other. That's what eating a meal is all about. You remember in 1 Corinthians 5 when Paul, the apostle, talks about 
the idea of a man who is immoral in the Corinthian church and that man is to be disfellowshipped from the church because of his immorality and his refusal to repent of it. And Paul says, I tell you, do not even eat with such a one, implying fellowship, implying relationship, implying the idea of an intimacy, a bond. You remember that kings in the Orient of this time, if they were your enemy, they would never eat with you. You would never be invited to the banquet of the king if you were an enemy of the king. But if you were a friend of the king, do you remember when the king himself, as analogous to God, invites people to the banquet table and he says, go out into the highways and byways and compel them to come in? Because it's a banquet, it's a rejoicing, because no longer is there an enemy status between me and you, but now there is a friendship status. There's intimacy, there's relationship, there's a bond. It's no different here. Jesus is saying, we're preparing for these things, and I have intimate relationship with you. We're eating together. We're celebrating the great Passover of what Yahweh has done to our people. And I'm telling you that even in the context of this intimacy of relationship, this fellowship, this wondrous enjoyment of one another, one of you in this crowd of 12 betrays me. And I'm going to show you who it is. Shock of all shocks. Betrayal. Even the word itself. Surely not I, Lord. That's what they say to him. One by one they begin to say, Lord, it isn't me, is it? Notice verse 19. They began to be grieved. And to say to him one by one, Lord, you're not, you're not suggesting that, that I'm a betrayer. How could this how could this be, Lord? I've, I know I've stumbled. I, I, I know I've, I've fallen down. I, I know I haven't always obeyed you, but, but Lord, I, I, I do love you. Do you remember Peter's angst in his soul in John 21? Lord, I, 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 I don't know why you're, you're continuing to ask me this question. You, you know that I love you. How could this, how could this be, Lord? Will you, this very night, ultimately point to me? To me? Can you imagine the grief and the soul of this intimate bond? Who is it? Surely it's not I. And then this statement that's frankly one of the most frightening, one of the most incredible one of the most hideous, at least from a human viewpoint, of a statement ever made. Verse 21, For the Son of Man is to go just as it is written of Him. There's the prophecy. There's the confirmation of it all. There's the idea that everything's still under control. Everything is happening as God designs. This is a verse, beloved, that is speaking of the fact that God is in sovereign control no matter what men may do. But woe, woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. What, what do we make of such a statement? Well, what does that mean? How do we understand such a thing? Wait a minute. If God is in control of everything, if God is in charge, 
God knows from the beginning, even before Judas is ever born, what he's going to do, what he's going to be like, what's going to happen. And if God knows that on the front end, how could it be that he ever created anyone for which a statement is true it would be good if he had never been born? How, how do you reconcile that in your mind? I mean, some of you may be saying, as, as I often do, I read uh, passages of, of Scripture in which it says that God in his sovereignty chooses, predestines, elects, those who are His from the foundation of the world, He chooses not by anything we do. It is not by the will of man. It is not by the flesh. It is not by His own choice, but it is by the choice of God and God alone. And if He chooses to pass over those who are in their sinful condition, He is righteous in doing so. And if He chooses to take those who are supposed to be passed over by all rights and all deserving because of their sinful condition, He instead says, out of the mass of sinful humanity, I will choose some for which I will set my love upon and they shall be my people and I will be their God and I'm righteous in doing that as well and how can the clay say to the potter how have you made me this way and I'm righteous in doing so and I exalt the love and grace of my own character by calling you from your sin that's true the Bible teaches that no way around it if you don't believe that you haven't studied your Bible best you haven't looked at these passages as they are in their context, but yet at the same time the Bible says that those who reject Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord reject Him because their will is to reject Him. They aren't choosing Jesus Christ and they will go to an everlasting perdition because they've rejected Him. It is their choice and God says, so be it, you are left in that state of rejection. That's the key to this passage. The key to understanding this is that God does know everything and He has decreed everything. And one of the things that He's allowed is a man named Judas to be born who is a betrayer, who says, I will not choose this man as Messiah. And therefore, the statement is as true as any statement if that is your will, your choice, your responsibility, it would be better, good, best, that you should never have been born. Why? Not because we experience betrayal among each other, because we're one sinful person betraying another sinful person. We understand that betrayal hurts, and there's sometimes I do some things that might deserve some act of vengeance on the part of somebody else toward me, or at least I think I do, and yet I know in my own heart that I sin also, for which sometimes it seems as though that's right when somebody does it to me, even though most of the time I think it's wrong. But Jesus Christ never did anything wrong. And the ultimate act of betrayal and the ultimate one who betrays him, Judas, it would be better if that had never been a part of his character never been a part of his choice because he is betraying not someone else who has sinned against other people and not someone else who may have even sinned against him. He is actually betraying the sinless Son of God. No justification, no warrant whatsoever. I'd say that for that person who has sinned that sin against that man, 
The statement holds true. It would be good for that man to never have been born. Why? Because Judas is in hell right now. Judas was not redeemed. He was never redeemed. In fact, later, after this, he commits suicide himself, which for theologicals and for biblical sake, someone who commits suicide may be redeemed, but not Judas. He has chosen what he has done. He has not repented. There's no indication in Scripture ever where Judas repented of his sins, ever, which, by the way, is contrasted to that of Peter, who when he betrayed the Lord, the Bible says, after he betrayed him the third time, what did he do? He went out and what? Wept bitterly. The signs of repentance. And Peter did turn around, and that also by sovereign decree, because Jesus, in fact, said to Peter himself, Satan has desired to sift you like wheat, but what? I have prayed for you that your faith fail not. And by the way, I know that prayer was answered because Jesus Christ never uttered a prayer that wasn't answered. Peter's faith did not fail. Peter was redeemed. Judas was not. Judas is the archetype. He's the prototype. He's the ultimate definition of betrayal. Why? Because he had the lust for power and control and money, even though Paul himself says in 1 Timothy 6, the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil, and that's exactly what Judas did. He's the exact opposite of what it means to live in a contented world with what you have, and that's food and covering, with, with, with thereby you shall be content. He was not content. He betrayed Jesus Christ for his own motives, and therefore Jesus can say of him, it would be good for you if you had not been born. Final statement. Final statement. You say, well, that's pretty strong, the idea that Judas is in hell. It's pretty strong, and boy, my theology suggests that everybody has a chance, everybody has a shot, everybody has an opportunity, and maybe even those who are in hell might ultimately have some sort of opportunity that we're not told in Scripture. Surely you don't mean that there will be people ultimately and forever suffering in hell for their sins. Yes, the Bible does teach that. And if there's anything about this text that challenges you and me, it better be this. What is my heart in comparison to Judas himself? Am I a betrayer? Have I continually spurned Jesus Christ and his reproof to repent and believe in him? Have I said to myself, I'll do it my own way, I'll follow my own course? Beloved, watch out, be careful, be warned. You might be not on the ultimate uh, path of the ultimate betrayer, but you could very well be on a path of betrayal nonetheless, and it would be a betrayal of Jesus Christ nonetheless, for which you then will be spending the same eternal place in perdition. That's why, by the way, Judas himself is called the son of what? Perdition. He's destined for that. That's his place. Why? Because he refused and you say, well, where did he refuse? I mean, surely Jesus told them in his intimate relationships with them that they needed to repent, they needed to believe in him. Surely we have all of those statements in Scripture. 
But what gives us the indication that Judas himself did not do that? Number one, he's called the son of perdition. Number two, it would be better if he'd never been born. Number three, when the ultimate opportunity for him to say no to the, to the betrayal came in this very text and in the, the other gospel accounts, when Jesus took that morsel and he put it in that bowl and he encouraged Judas to do the same as the ultimate opportunity to turn away from his sin, it said Judas left. He left. He went away. He took off. He sold him out. He sold out Christ. That, that's the worst kind of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit for which there is no forgiveness. To attribute to the Son of God something for which he needed to be arrested and tried and murdered, there's no greater betrayal than that. That's, that's just like the Pharisees claiming that the works that Christ were doing were not the works of the Holy Spirit, but the works of Beelzebul. That's the, that's the ultimate betrayal. And that's Judas. Sealed with a Judas kiss. And it was sealed. Judas is not redeemable from this point on. And what he does, he does. And that's why Jesus says, Judas, what you do, do quickly. Do it. I'm going to the cross. You think it's because of something other than it is. I'm doing it to save. You're doing it to buy yourself what you desperately want, whatever that may be. And it could be of, of us, beloved, that we say, look, I'm no Judas. Don't put me in that category. Don't say that about me. Anybody who rejects the offer of Jesus Christ to believe and repent of your sins and have an intimacy of a relationship with Him, to be able to sup with Him, fellowship with Him, eat with Him in the spiritual virtues of life, if you say no to that, you're a son of perdition. Just this very morning, as I was printing the notes out of my sermon, there came to me as a regular email post a quote from Spurgeon that comes to me every day from someone who has a ministry for which I'm on that list, and as I subscribe, a quote from Spurgeon comes, and it's usually a wonderful affirmation of some aspect of the Bible, the Christian life. The one this very morning at 6 a.m. said this, the murderers of Christ. A sight of Christ on the cross will cause us to hate our sins. If you ever, by the eye of faith, see Jesus Christ dying for you, sin will never be sweet to you again. What was it slew our blessed Lord? It was our sin. It was you, my sins, my cruel sins, his chief tormentors were. Each of my crimes became a nail and unbelief the spear. When we discover that our, our iniquities put our dearest and best friend to death, we vow revenge against our iniquities and henceforth hate them with a perfect hatred. Let me illustrate this very simply. Here is a knife with a richly carved ivory handle, a knife of excellent workmanship. Yonder woman, we will suppose, has had a dear child murdered by a cruel enemy. This knife is hers, and she is pleased with it and prizes it much. How can I make her throw that knife away? I can do it easily. For that is the knife with which her child was killed. Look at it. There is blood still upon the handle. She drops it as though it were a scorpion. She cannot bear it. Put it away, says she. It killed my child. Oh, hateful thing. 
Now sin is such a thing. We play with it until we are told it was sin that killed the Lord Jesus who died out of love to us, pure self-sacrificing love. Then we say, hateful thing, get you gone. How can I endure you? See there the wounds of the Son of God. Behold the crimson stains which mark his blessed body. Mark the thorn crown. Gaze upon the pierced hands. Weep over the nailed feet. See the deep gash which the lance made in his side. Sin did this cruel work, this bloody deed. Down with our sins. Drag them to the cross. Slay them at Calvary. Let not one of them escape, for they are the murderers of Christ. Oh, we could talk about Judas all day long. But you know and I know that the focus of our relationship of intimacy with Jesus Christ ultimately really doesn't have anything to do with Judas. It has to do with our own heart. I slew Christ. I killed him. I'm the one to blame. I want to be delivered from such a thing, don't you? And thank God if you believe and repent of your sins, and place your total confidence in Jesus Christ and Him alone for your salvation, that even though your sins put Jesus Christ on the cross, and mine as well, we are forgiven, redeemed. We will not in eternity be sealing our betrayal of Jesus Christ with a kiss. Is that your heart? Is that your life? Is that where you are? Believe in Christ. Repent of your sin. Speak to someone who you're here with. Speak to someone next to you. Speak to me. Speak to an elder, a deacon, a, an usher. Speak to someone. Say, I, I don't have that intimacy with Christ. I'm the one who not only has put him on the cross, but he is there because of my sin. Repent of that. Say, Christ, forgive me. Give me life. Give me the the redemption that I know instead of being a murderer, I'm now your friend and I can have fellowship with you. I can eat a meal with you. I can have the, the spiritual virtues of life extended to me by your gracious hand because you have saved me from my sin. Don't walk away, beloved. Don't walk away from this message by saying to yourself, all is well, if you are experiencing even now the conviction of sin in your soul. That's the Holy Spirit's work. He convicts the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. You know that you're not right with Christ. Become right with Him right now. Bow your heads with me. Say to yourself, Lord, Lord, I don't, I don't want to even be characterized as one like Judas who sold out the Savior. I don't want to be one who says, Lord, away from me. I've sold you out. Lord, I pray for everyone here, everyone within my voice who, who may have played the, the role of a disciple, who may have been around the church, around spiritual things, but who knows in their heart they're running their own life. They have a lust for control. I pray that you would take the spiritual shackles off of that desire for control. Let, let them fall. Let them fall away. Lord, please, we, we ask you to do your work. 
do your work now. Confront those who need to be confronted and encourage and affirm those who have been forgiven. We offer you up our plea for salvation and our affirmation of praise if we know you. Lord, may Judas, who's dipped his hand in the morsel and refused Jesus Christ, may, may that be a, a regular and systematic challenge, not only not to live our lives as betrayers of Christ, but betrayers of one another in our relationship to them. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.